0: You can't be upset by things that happen that don't seem at the time like they're a disaster and that you seem like you've failed or bombed, that things do happen for a reason. And I'm always asked, what would I do differently? And I quickly always respond to nothing because I think not always can you immediately know why that thing is happening in your life, but one day you will.
1: Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Holly Thagar, to our show today. Holly is the founder of Supergoop, the first and only skincare brand that's 100% dedicated to UV protection. In 2005, Holly's life and career path completely changed when a good friend of hers was diagnosed with skin cancer. It was at this point she realized that people weren't taking sunscreen seriously. Holly realized the importance for someone to make sunscreen quote-unquote cool in order to stop the epidemic of skin cancer. Leaving her career as an elementary school teacher, Holly decided to jump into the very unfamiliar world of SPF. After having a tough start by trying to sell her sunscreen into elementary schools, since that was the world she knew, Holly pivoted to retail and eventually got her product into big retailers like Sephora and Nordstrom after years of building her brand and perfecting her product. Fast forward to today, Supergoop is a must-have product by skincare gurus everywhere and is over 40 million in revenue. We'll chat with Holly about what it takes to disrupt an entire category, how her musical talents helped fund her business when she had very little money, and the lessons she learned as a first-time entrepreneur who had a massive vision. Welcome to the show, Holly. Thank you. I'm super excited to connect with you today. I'm excited that you're with us today. I know you've had quite the windy path to get super to where it is today and you hear that a lot from entrepreneurs, but yours is particularly interesting. So I can't wait to jump into it. So on the podcast, we always love to start with your upbringing. I know you grew up in a very entrepreneurial household. Can you share more about how you think that's impacted you and the woman that you are today? Yeah, definitely. You know, both of my parents are entrepreneurs. My dad, out of college, after marrying my mother, took
0: a $50,000 loan and started a heavy machinery company. And I definitely watched him over the years as a young child build that to what is now a size that has enabled my, in fact, older sister to take the business over as my father's now enjoying more time on the golf course. So I've spent many weekends sitting under his desk and and looking at all of the cool things and that he was doing and building and creating. And, and my mother too, you know, in fact, she's a remarkable artist. She started her business in painting custom handbags and she retailed at Neiman Marcus and I watched her build that business and turn it into painting portraits and then ultimately spending quite a bit of her career in D.C. and in New York, commissioned paintings by the Forbes family and, and gosh, Secretary of State and government work and lawyers and judges. I watched both of their careers over the course of my childhood, elementary and high school, really turn their passion into something very successful. And I definitely think that the time spent watching my father in sales and marketing meetings and bringing home the cool marketing materials at the time, that was when Zig Ziglar was a big sort of, that was pre-podcasting days, but he had these big books of cassette tapes that he would open up. And and I just really became fascinated with the philosophies of Zig Ziglar and sales and how he approached marketing. So, definitely shaped my life, I think, and where I am today because I've, I just, I never intended to start a business, but I love to create and I love to build. And definitely over the last 16 plus years, I've been able to enjoy a similar success with Supergoop.
1: Yeah, you definitely are, I would say, a combination of both your parents, your dad being the entrepreneur and business-minded. For those that don't know Zig Ziglar, he is a sales and marketing guru. So the fact that you were even listening to that at a young age is just amazing. And your mom, who is so artistic, and I think you really bring both worlds, especially when you started Supergoop. But what's interesting about your story is you didn't jump into entrepreneurship starting out. You actually studied education in school. And ended up working at an elementary school. There's so much to unpack there, but I would love to hear more about how and why you entered education and what that experience was like. Yeah. So having creative parents, my mother being an artist and her mother was an
0: artist and a musician. She was a harpist. And my parents always taught us to sort of look for the white space and things. I started playing the piano actually at a young age and looked around and thought the world has enough pianists in it, but what is that bright shiny gold harp in the corner? And so I also, I guess I was about fourth grade, started playing the harp and just became fascinated with music and art and nurtured those talents all through middle school and high school was when I started performing and playing on the weekends at the parties and weddings and for dinner parties. And then my first two years in school, I actually studied music because I thought, well, I'm a harpist. I'm a musician. I'm going to study. And then what I learned very quickly was in the music school, the musicians were very serious. They were very accomplished. And they weren't so... in. I think, inspired by the business of music as much as they were their music. And what I realized about the difference in me is I was more inspired to build a business around music. And because I was already doing that in high school, I was already performing. I was like, why am I studying this in college? And so I shifted and changed my studies toward being an elementary school teacher and you know, I think that was really just a decision I made because I was like, I don't want to be in the music school anymore. I don't fit into the marching band with a harp. And so what else could I do? What else could I be? And I just, I've always been a very organized person. I love sticky notes. I still today have a cup of pencils on my desk and I was brought up to put my goals on my mirror in the bathroom and every week work through those. And so, I thought, you know, let's look at the category of teaching this I should be able to do this and not lose any momentum in being able to still graduate in four years because what ultimately I always wanted to do was just get out of college to start creating and doing things so i didn't want to I didn't want this change in my degree to further out the time that I was spending in college, and so that's how I little stumbled on being a teacher. I got out of college I went to board of a private Episcopal school because I was already performing for all of their private dinner parties. And I said, I am out of college and I want to teach. And so I got a job at Episcopal and this was when I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, which was the most affluent school. And it was a fantastic position. It was later I learned nearly impossible to be a first year teacher without an MBA and land a job. But I was fortunate in to have the right connections to start my
1: career in teaching. So you landed this pretty coveted teaching job despite not having your MBA. And I know after a year in, they decided not to renew your contract. So what did it feel like at that moment when you studied education, your goal was to be a teacher, and then you realized that you no longer have a job at the place you were at? I'm sure that wasn't easy. Can you share more about what that entire experience was like?
0: Yeah, sure. I really enjoyed that year and still keep in touch today with many of those 17. They're not third graders anymore. I still think of them as third graders, but I still keep in touch with so many of them because I had such a fantastic experience in the classroom. I leaned into the arts and music to teach many of the subject curriculum matters and had so many different ideas for whole learning in the classroom. But like you mentioned, the end of the year came and when all of the contracts were put in the teacher boxes, my box was empty. And I was devastated, to be honest with you. I thought, my gosh, what am I going to do? And, and going a different direction or trying to find another teaching job wasn't even something I ever considered because I thought I've already had the best of the best experience. And I've put into action everything that I possibly wanted to do in the classroom that year, won multiple awards and And I thought, I'm going to just go play the harp because that was not what was cut out for me, obviously. (laughs) And I think for me, I didn't realize the politics behind first, you're in a new position right out of college, you have to play with what you're given, and you have to sort of work the system to fit in. And there were so many things that when I look back now, I realize I was breaking rules and not eating in the cafeteria with the other teachers. And that's how it was explained to me. I, I just didn't culturally fit into being a third grade school teacher. And in my mind, you know, today, if you fast forward, I really think that. I'm still teaching, right? That's the core. The education is at the foundation of this brand. It wasn't in the cards for me to be confined to the four walls of a classroom.
1: Yeah, and it's interesting to see how your life today and really your life-building supergroup still incorporated a lot of education. So you were kind of essentially doing your old job in this new world that you're in. So at that moment when they didn't renew your contract, what were you thinking about in terms of your next step? Did you know what you wanted to jump into or did you have another job lined up? What was your experience like at that time?
0: Yeah, so I took a little bit of time to recover from not continuing my career at Episcopal and then helped my brother move. I have a younger brother, six years younger, and he was moving into the dorms at SMU in Dallas. I left Baton Rouge and helped him move into the dorms. And I looked around and I saw these beautiful homes in Highland Park. And I thought, you know, they need Holly the Harpist in their life. And I thought, you know, I'm going to shift. And I never stopped playing through even through my teaching career. I brought the harp into the classroom. I played evenings and weekends. So it was very natural for me to say, I can do this and I can go play the harp and, and figure out what my next steps will be. And I ended up doing that for almost 10 years. All through my 20s, I became and enjoyed most building the business of Holly the Harpist in Dallas. And when I say I enjoyed building the business, I think I even enjoyed it more than entertaining and actually playing the harp. But I would go through the book of lists and I would write letters, you know, my heritage, I'm from the South. And my mother always taught us it was very important to write those handwritten letters. And and so, you know, it was very natural for me to reach out to the CEOs of every big company in Dallas and introduce myself. And I definitely had the references from playing and performing at the Museum of Art in New Orleans. And I had some great references and I put together the marketing materials and really enjoyed the next 10 years of performing and building the business. It was later when I met my husband and we started talking about children and building a life together. And I realized that nights and weekends and holidays were going to be a really tough, tough to have a family. And I had all through my 20s played every Thanksgiving day, every Christmas Eve, every Christmas day. The jobs and the parties and the events were always on nights and weekends and holidays. And we sort of started talking about getting married and having children. And I knew that I wanted to sort of retire is actually what I thought I was ready for.
1: So when you were having these conversations with your husband around retiring Holly the harpist were you intentionally looking for different business opportunities? Or how did the idea of SuperGroup come about? Because I know at that time, it was such a sleepy category. So there was so much room for disruption. But what was the motivation for you to want to start SuperGroup and bring this idea to life?
0: Yeah, you know, no, I don't think I was, it was never for me about, oh, now I want to create a sunscreen company. It was more about I'm going to take fewer jobs. I'm going to enjoy this time being engaged with my husband, my now husband, and just see what the next part of my life will turn into. And it was right about that time that a good friend of ours was diagnosed with skin cancer. And it was one of my husband's college friends. And he was 29 and he had blonde hair and blue eyes. I couldn't believe that someone so young could get skin cancer because typically you don't see that until much later in life. And my very good college friend was going through her residency in dermatology. And when I, she often would come to visit and we got to talking about my friend, Colin. And she said, you know, it's not about the beach, Holly. It's about that every single day exposure that happens for your friend at a very early age, for most people, not until much later in life, but it's the result of cumulative damage, little bits of five, 10 minutes of exposure over the course of a lifetime that will ultimately turn into skin cancer because people are not wearing SPF every single day. And I learned that that's why One in five people are now being diagnosed with skin cancer. It's 16 times bigger than breast cancer. And I thought, this is crazy. It could be prevented with a magic lotion, and yet people aren't wearing it.
1: It's true. I mean, even for me, I just started wearing sunscreen somewhat recently. I mean, maybe a year ago. So you guys have done so much education about the importance of this, and there's still so much opportunity to educate people on wearing sunscreen every single day. What's interesting about your life up until this point is despite you ending certain things or things not working out for you, you've never really put pressure on yourself to figure out the next thing at a certain time. You're very much in the present and you're really good at going with the flow of life and seeing opportunities as they come to you. Can you share more about where you get that from and what advice you have for people who might be wanting to be like that more in their life?
0: Well, I've always loved to create this all goes back to what i like to do most is to solve problems i love to solve problems and when i saw this as being a major problem in this country i looked at the sun care category and it was as you mentioned incredibly sleepy there was no innovation in product it was marketed only in the summer months on an end cap i saw all this opportunity and i think in my life you know i've really always one thing has always flowed right into the next thing, full of ideas. And I think, you know, in this perfect example, I was thinking, gosh, we're not teaching this healthy habit to our youth. And I thought back about my time in the classroom and it was like, I had 17 third graders. I never once saw a tube of sunscreen and they were outside in the peak hours of the day. Often they would stay after school in sports And I never saw sunscreen. And I, as a teacher, never wore sunscreen. And so I was like, this is why we have a cancer epidemic because nobody's wearing sunscreen unless they hit the beach in the month of July. And so I felt like for me, solving problems is just at the core. It's so natural for me. It's it's so fun and exciting and I get so passionate about it. So I think I could have been any category that I noticed a problem that I knew needed someone to step in and, in this case, change a category and actually create a category, because I truly believe that it's not skincare unless it's built on a foundation in both UVA and UVB protection.
1: So when you saw this opportunity to disrupt and really educate everybody around sunscreen, what were your initial steps? Because sunscreen is not something that you can just play around with and create in your kitchen. How did you even learn more about the chemical compounds and what it takes to really create the product?
0: The first thing I became obsessed with is researching who the chemists were in this country and why they were making sunscreens that were full of controversial ingredients. And just getting them on the phone and saying, why is oxybenzone in every chemical formula? Why do mineral formulas with zinc feel so thick and pasty on the skin? Why can't we do this better? And I spent quite a bit of time talking with every chemist that would listen to me. And I literally Googled who's who in chemistry and sunscreen technology. And I learned through the sunscreen symposium and so many different events, who was the who's who of chemists. And and I just weaseled my way into their world. And We'd have these conversations about what was on the market, why it was only on the shelf from May, June, and July. And what I learned from my friend who is a dermatologist, and that we have to de-seasonalize this was my sort of pitch is we have to de-seasonalize this category. It's a cancer epidemic. And it needs to be at the time, when you looked at sunscreen, everything was just about the beach and bikinis. And it was like, I need to get sunscreen into the bathroom. I need to get put it by the toothpaste. I need to teach this healthy habit. We need to put a healthy, efficacious formula into school classrooms across America, which was really my original idea for Supergoop.
1: And we'll definitely get into that in a little bit, just how you wanted to get into schools and then you had to pivot. But before we get there, what I really want to highlight about your story is how you... Did not have any expertise in the world of sunscreen and how you just put yourself out there, Googled different chemists to really learn about what it takes to create the product. And I think this is important because I always say Google's my best friend. There's so much that you can learn. There's so many people that you can connect with. So if you're wanting to get into a new industry, create new products, or even switch careers, put yourself out there. You'd be surprised. People are willing to take the time and talk to you. Definitely. And, you know, I think
0: also sometimes industry experts are too close to whatever it is they're experts in to understand that there's a problem with the way things have been done and they just continue to do things the way they've always been done. And what I got from so many of those chemists in our early conversations was, oh, well, you have to have oxybenzone in a formula. It won't be efficacious. And I'm like, well, why? Because it's also found in breast cancer tissue. And my mother's a breast cancer survivor, and I'm not going to bring a product to market that could contribute to another cancer. And so I think it sometimes takes being outside of an industry to ask the right questions
1: to change a category. I could not agree more. It's so true. Such a good point. I think there are no dumb questions, and those questions you ask as an outsider, they're changing the way people think. And there's so much opportunity there. So it's great to see how that's translated in your life with Super So you've created this product, and being a teacher, you are clearly very familiar with the education space. So can you chat with us more about what your initial distribution strategy was when you were looking to finally launch the product? Yeah. So interestingly,
0: I was recently looking at my diary from that time and I I loved a journal and our daughter Emery was just born when we launched this original Supergoop formula that we had created. Once I had found the chemist that would, was willing to work on this project with me, then I shifted all into marketing and like, how do I create a logo? How do I learn Photoshop? What is this going to be called? What is that fun, playful name that will appeal to children so that we can encourage healthy habits from a young age? And so I got working on the marketing all through my pregnancy, actually, my first child. And I hear from so many founders too. It's often when you have your first child that the ideas are flowing and you have energy and you're just...
1: Yes, that is so, so true. And something we We hear all the time on the podcast. Yep. And so I spent that time really building this business model around putting
0: this supergoop first formula into school classrooms across America. And I quickly learned that as an over-the-counter drug at the time, it was actually prohibited on school campuses. It was thought of like bringing Advil or Tylenol to school in your backpack, which you would never send your five-year-old with. And it goes to show how sleepy the category was. No one had been passionate enough to advocate for a policy to be carved out to allow SPF sunscreen to be brought to school or available in the classroom. Yet again, the kids are on the playground at the peak time at 12 noon and often in sports after school. And and I thought, this is crazy. I looked at this, though, as being a very long road ahead if I were going to change policies. I knew nothing about advocating for change on Capitol Hill. And so I thought, well, I taught in a private school. I know they write their own rules. And so I called on five or six private schools. I talked with the, used my little playbook that I did when I built Holly the Harpist. And I would go to the school board, the parents association, the principal, the headmaster, and just explain this, that they had an obligation to protect the skin of our youth. And I got five or six schools on board for a launch that spring. And I uh, spent a good bit of time writing a curriculum because I know it's not a lack of product. It's a lack of education. And so I played and pulled from those days of writing programs around t- topics, which is what I love to do in the classroom. And I created a, a, a curriculum for pre-K through fifth grade and uh, was ready after our daughter was born in December to hit the ground running and execute this program in these five or six schools. And in fact, I think she was born and my journal said two weeks later, I was flying to Louisiana to launch in two private schools in New Orleans. and, And then I had three schools in Dallas that I had convinced to participate in the program. And I spent that next year really traveling to those schools and helping inspire the teachers and the athletes, the coaches to help motivate the kids to wear sunscreen. I also, along the way, would call on new schools, and I found that this was going to be very hard to scale. It wasn't moving quickly enough, reaching five schools in a year. I've always had this vision to change the way the world thinks about sunscreen, and I had to take a step back and say, and I also I heard a lot about some of the problems. One, it was expensive. My model was around the schools purchasing Supergoop. And schools have trouble paying for pencils and and notebooks. And so I could see that even if I were able to change policies to allow SPF in public schools, I could see that that would be a real big roadblock, that they wouldn't be able to fund it. And I also hadn't built the brand either. I also had parents, as you can imagine, in private schools that were like, what is Supergoop? And it was a completely new brand. And I felt like I needed to take a step back and go in a different direction and Build the brand at retail. And that really came from a conversation that I had with several of the parents of the schools. And they said after that year they were excited their child had learned a healthy habit, but they asked me to go to their country club and put supergoop around the country club so that the children could continue to build on that habit that they had formed during the school year. And that for me seemed super easy because right, I was playing the heart for all of those country clubs and I knew exactly who to go talk to. And walked in the general manager's door, and he, of all the private country clubs in Dallas, and they all embraced this idea and put Supergoop all over the country club. And that's when I really started learning the business of retail.
1: It's interesting to see your evolution going from trying to get the product in schools to hearing the parents suggest that you go into country clubs, and you really seeing this new opportunity to go into retail. That actually reminds me of a specific conversation you had with your father, actually, over at Thanksgiving dinner. I believe you approached him to invest in your company because you're trying to get it out there into the retail outlets. And he mentioned a comment that really shifted the way you thought about scale. Can you take us back to that Thanksgiving dinner and share more about how that conversation went? Sure. So that Thanksgiving dinner was a few years after my launch in country clubs. I had
0: already expanded into children's retail. When I was looking at the retail business, I really thought, you know, country clubs are still a little seasonal. And I've just fought with all my might to not make this a seasonal brand. And so children's retail, prestige retail is where I spent the next couple of years, building in some of the most beautiful children's boutiques across America. And then you know i was able to scale that to a size each year we would double or triple the size of the revenue but it was still just me and product innovation was still just at the core of how i spent most of my time was in development of game changing spf products and so it was then at the point that i had probably 100 150 little children's boutiques from fao schwartz in new york to giggle and i had felt that I was outgrowing that business. And a lot of times when these beautiful children's brands launch at Prestige Children's Retail, they then have to continue to scale and they ultimately end up in Target. Well, for me, I didn't feel that that was right, but I felt that I needed to continue just continue figuring out ways to grow and, and hit those trade shows. And like you mentioned that Thanksgiving dinner came and we sat down and I wanted to go to another Vegas trade show and and it was coming up and coming fast. And my husband had recently decided to go out on his own and we were kind of broke. We, We weren't kind of broke. We were broke and a maxed out American Express that we could pay off enough to like, buy more product and blow it up again. And so I sat with my father and I explained why this trade show was so important because it was a prestige children's trade show and I felt like I could get a big account And I just needed some money to go. And he looked at me and he said, Holly, how are you going to continue to scale this? I mean, let's say you go to this show and there's a hundred more. Let's say you double the number of children's boutiques. And I was very, very picky about the boutiques that I would go into. I wouldn't just take anything because I felt, I've always felt strongly that your buyers, you should choose them so selectively that you could have a dinner party and they could all sit around the table together and you could go to the kitchen and not be afraid of what they were talking about. And so I had this really high level of like, I wanted only those boutiques that would embrace education and really embrace the story here and help their communities shape and inspire wearing SPF. So I explained to him and he said, how are you going to do this? And I said, you know, dad, I just, I've got to keep going. I've just got to keep going. And I think every entrepreneur has those difficult conversations with their family, especially when they're asking for money. And I was asking for a check of I think it was $45,000. And that was a lot. And ultimately, my father left the check on the counter the next day before leaving San Antonio. And he said, Holly, go get your elephant. It's time you go get your elephant. You have got to scale this. I knew exactly what he meant, because I'd listened to those tapes that Zig Ziglar had always talked about getting your elephant, which was your big account, what's going to support the growth and help you scale. And I said, Okay, I flew out. To Vegas, and I set up my beautiful trade show. But what I didn't realize was that in this trade show, I had fought hard to be in the natural organic section because our ingredients were so ingredient conscious of making sure each and every ingredient is healthy. And where I landed was in the middle of the natural section of very homegrown granola type brands that didn't really even fit with my beautiful white aesthetic. And all the big buyers seemed to be upstairs with all the bigger brands that were more modern looking, and which was similar to my aesthetic. And the, slow was in, the show was also incredibly sleepy. It was five days of just nobody was coming down to this section. But the lady to my right was knitting. Her brand was called Happy Green Bee. And she spent all five days knitting. And I actually learned to knit from sitting there with her. And we talked about the show being particularly slow. And, and on the last day of that show, someone commented when we were breaking down our boots that, I had sure made best friends of Roxanne. And I said, Oh, I know she's been so sweet. And they said, you do know who that is. And I said, her name's Roxanne. She knits stockings. And they said, no, that's Roxanne Quimby, the founder of Burt's Bees. No way. Wow. Which I just got chills. And I immediately walked right over there. And I said, Roxanne, how could you not tell me? And she said, Holly, I wanted to hear your story, not from the perspective that you knew who I was. And she said, I really want to help you. I love what you're doing. I think you're onto something. This category needs disruption. And how can I help? And so I, at that moment, knew my whole entire reason for fighting to be where I was. And it worked out for me. And I think you know one of the great takeaways from that is you can't be upset by things that happen that don't seem at the time like they seem like they're a disaster. And you seem like you've failed or bombed. But look at what I mean, I could not have asked for a better spend of five days, even if I had not added one single retailer. And I think that that's something really important to realize that things do happen for a reason. And I'm always asked, what would I do differently? And I quickly always respond nothing, because I think not always can you immediately know why that thing is happening in your life. But one day you will.
1: Wow, what a story to have been placed in a trade show in an area that wasn't even in your category and you spent that check your dad gave you to even be there and in retrospect, you end up becoming good friends with Roxanne, who is a powerhouse entrepreneur. I know this moment for you was such a turning point. So can you share more about what the next steps were? Because Supergroup really went to the next level following this whole experience. One of the things that I
0: needed more than anything was a PR firm in New York. And I learned throughout those two years of building my prestige children's business, I had a really great opportunity fall into my lap. The skincare buyer at Sephora was a new mom in San Francisco and she had stumbled on my brand at Giggle. Her name is Kim Holt. And she called the number on the packaging, which was my cell phone number. And because I wanted to make sure anybody that wanted to talk supergoop could reach me directly. And you know, she said, Holly, we've been passing your products around the office and I'm the skincare buyer at Sephora and We think there's something really interesting here. You have very science-backed formulas, but you're delivering them in a very playful, fun spirit. And that's very unique to skincare because skincare, and this was back in 2007, was really serious. It was owned by the doctor-driven brands at Prestige. And so it was very highly clinical and nothing was fun about the packaging. and. And she said, I want to help you. We're interested in meeting. I think it's too young. but And this was, again, before the meeting of Roxanne Quimby. It was back when we just had this phone conversation. And she said, these are the things you need to do to get ready for Sephora business. And one of them was to get a PR firm and start getting your... Products mentioned in all of the big magazines. This was before influencers, this was before social media. So I actually started working on that and could never get the attention of anyone in New York. And I really had always, I knew that the trends were set in LA and New York. And so I never really started building this business in Texas. It was always for me about if I'm going to change consumer behavior, I need to go to where the trends are set. And that's on the East and West Coast. And so I immediately said to Roxanne, fast forward to that conversation, I need a publicist. And I can't get anyone's attention to save my life because I don't have big enough distribution from this country. And so all the PR firms have such big retainers that they really only bring on brands that already have a national account that... Because if you're in the magazines and you can't be found, your product can't be found. And this was before really direct-to-consumer even existed. So You had to have, and it just was this awful cycle that I was in. And so I said to Roxanne, I need help. I need a publicist in New York. And she said, I can help you there. And I think it was in the cab on the way to the airport that I got a call from Nancy Berman in New York, who owns the biggest beauty PR firm in New York City. And she said, I think we need to meet. I just had a phone call and she had launched Burt's Bees back in the day, Roxanne. And so she had a very big, successful career with Burt's Bees.
1: That's so incredible. I feel like all the setbacks, all the opportunities you've had to that date really made you become ready to have someone like a Roxanne come into your life because you really utilized her connections to take you to the next step. At that time, there was no Instagram, there was no social media. So getting into these larger publications was incredibly important because you had to drive people to the stores to buy your product so the fact that roxanne connected you with one of the top pr firms in new york is amazing to hear but the question i still have at the back of my mind is you still didn't have a lot of money at the time you use your dad's check to get you to this trade show so when you met with this pr company how did you manage the relationship and even afford to work with someone like that
0: well, I took seriously my dad's comment, go find your elephant. I thought I had found my elephant. I knew that the ticket to getting that elephant was a PR firm. And I knew it was going to be expensive. And I always credit my husband for this because you're right. We had no earthly idea how or how much, how expensive it was going to be or how we were going to pay that bill because the company was still just doing that year I think, like I said, fifty thousand dollars. It was we were not doing the revenue to support a big New York PR firm. But I think when you know your job and when you know what you should be doing and you know what you need to do, which was land the elephant, you just kind of keep going and putting things in place. And and for me, that was fly to New York, take several meetings, because once I had that first meeting, it was easy to get all the competition on board. I had Paris and to do. And then It's really just, we'll figure it out. My husband said, we'll figure it out. I'm not sure what we'll do, but this is what needs to happen. And initially, Nancy Berman's proposal to us was, we'll do a retainer from January to June that allows us to hit all the long leads in January. So you'll be in the May, June books. And then the short leads, we can fill out February, March, April, the shorter lead time magazines and press and blogs. And of course, that was like nails on a chalkboard to me because I'm trying to de-seasonalize a category. And so we actually had to talk Nancy into taking a, a bigger proposal and helping me 12 months a year. I told her I wanted to see the beauty editors at least four times. I wanted desk sides a year. I wanted to explain what the problem was. It was fundamentally a problem that the magazines were only talking about SPF in May and June, right? And so if we're going to change a category and get people talking about SPF in the wintertime, we can't have the magazines only talking about it in May and June. So we ultimately decided on a retainer that was well more than I was making in revenue that year. But I knew that she could also help me navigate some retail of partners. One of our first meetings was with the skincare buyer at Barney's. And I knew that that was the first step because if the magazines, now that I had a a PR firm, if the magazines were going to write about me, we had to be available nationwide. And Barney's had LA, San Francisco, Chicago, Dallas, Miami, New York. So it had the distribution to allow me to be a national brand, which would then I could go to the editors and get that press going on a bigger scale, which really took several years after that to where we had to just sort of widen start getting the press in March, in April. I mean, there were so many hundreds of desk side meetings telling the story about how important it was that we talk about SPF in the shoulder seasons of sun. And, and that's the only way changing a category is gonna, going to happen. Then I just started looking for partnerships because I knew that I didn't didn't have a marketing team. didn't, <laughs> And I knew that if the product was going to shelf, I, it had to sell. So I started thinking about who it was that was going to be open-minded enough to buy a brand that has a fun, playful, silly name, but be very serious in its science-backed formulas. And after that launch in Barney's, I had some amazing opportunities. The TED conference in Long Beach, back when there was only like one a year, called and asked me to sponsor and give a gift to everyone that attended the conference, which the attendees spent much of their time outside on the campus. And That's when Elon Musk's team called, they were launching the Roadster and he asked to put Supergoop in the cup holders. And I knew I was kind of onto something big when these very unique, game-changing, I think disruptive other founders and people doing very cool things were interested in the brand and had found us without any marketing and I think that's what fuels entrepreneurs just as little phone calls you get and I always say I mean you know there's this temptation always to look a little bigger than you are you want to, but don't miss an opportunity to have someone reach you directly and put your number on the packaging and I think there's little things you can do along the way that are very inspiring. And getting my email every morning was always exciting to see what was going to come in and who had found me and what opportunity were they going to deliver?
1: What I think is interesting about your story is it still took years to de-seasonalize sunscreen with the press and also get yourself in front of someone like a Barneys, right? But along the way, you were still figuring out ways to build momentum. And I think leaning into partnerships like you did who have a larger reach and a larger audience was important and really still building your momentum as a company is something to really focus on versus, for example, strict revenue goals and pushing yourself to absolutely hit certain targets over the years. It's more so about are you creating awareness and building momentum for your business like you guys did. So you finally get into Barney's throughout the US. How did you think about fundraising and really supporting that growth? Yeah, and you know, I think
0: this kind of goes back to some advice my mother gave me when I was young. It doesn't have to always be perfect. And when I look back at the packaging that we launched with in Barney's today, I just it was done on Photoshop and I taught myself Photoshop. Nothing was perfect about it. But my formulas, what was in the bottle was absolutely game-changing, never been felt so luxurious. I mean, the formulas carried us when the packaging didn't look so sharp. And so I poured every dollar into product that we could make. And I had to take... I remember taking out another harp job and playing to pay the bill. And I convinced our chemist at the time that was our contract manufacturer to hold inventory and let me pull from it when I had already sold it. I negotiated really hard on net 15 terms because cash flow for me was everything. And you know, I think people love to see a passionate founder and you can really lean into doing things differently when you've never done this before. I wasn't from the beauty industry. I didn't know that was crazy to ask for these requests from our contract manufacturers. I didn't know that it was crazy to ask for those favors from retail. So I just asked and figured out every which way I could to continue on. And I think ultimately that paid off for me and helped me be a very scrappy entrepreneur, which I think... Today, having a a business that's sustainable and profitable, and it helped me build that because I didn't get in over my skis. I didn't call any fancy branding agency to help me. I just learned as I went and improved. And today, I mean, I'm so proud of our packaging. I mean, but gosh, we have a team right now in place of 56 people that contribute in their own each every way. I was on the phone onboarding on Zoom this morning with four of our newest hires. And I'm so proud to have everybody now today that is such an expert in their category because I remember the day that I was just sort of winging it and doing it all myself in sort of a half scrappy way. I think when you feel our formulas and when you compared at the time to what was on the market, they carried themselves and allowed me to survive those times. My plan with the launch of Barney's was to travel around each of those locations and take their beauty floor and have a lunch. And so I planned 2-hour lunch lunches and take everyone on the beauty floor in LA, San Francisco, Chicago, New York and Dallas and sit down for 2 hours and give them I mean like what I thought was the most elaborate lunch ever. <laughs> really hard. And I think I remember even funding one of those lunches with playing the harp for the restaurant that catered it. (laughs) And so we would have these great lunches. I think everybody thought we were a little bigger than just me. And I'd get them on board with the whole story. But that's what Varney's was so good about is telling stories for beauty brands. And that's how I knew they were actually a good partner prior to launching Soon Later in Sephora.
1: So I think a lot of people might assume that you need a certain amount of capital to even start and run a business. And what I think stands out about your experience is it's all about being creative financially, right? You reached out to your vendors, you negotiated terms with them, you were playing the harp on the side to provide that capital for your growing business at the time. So I think these stories are important to hear because a lot of people don't start what they do because they assume they need a certain amount of capital to get anything up and running. So I understand Sephora reached out to you early on in the business. They said they loved your product, but you were still too small and the brand really wasn't ready for them. I know you eventually ended up getting back in front of them. So can you talk to us about the journey of how the relationship of Sephora came about? Definitely. Well, I
0: I always had my father's little, his, what are you going to do next? And you've got to continue to scale. And Sephora just, it felt right. I had had a couple of years of press. I'd built a press book that was pretty impressive. (laughs) And so I felt like it was time. And so I picked up the phone. I called Kim. I didn't even know if she was still at Sephora. I got her voicemail. I was totally ready for her voicemail. I didn't think anybody would pick up the phone at Sephora. And I left her a message that I was going to be in San Francisco the following
1: week. And I was ready to sit down and visit. And if I remember correctly, she actually never even got back to you on a meeting time, and you still had booked a flight to San Francisco, right? Well,
0: I did, because I thought the
1: easiest way to get the meeting would be to tell her I was
0: already coming, not that I wanted to come, because then I thought she could maybe put me off. So I said, I'm going to be there Monday through Friday next week. I wanted to give her a lot of options. She didn't call me back, but I did feel, and I remember driving to the airport that Monday, And literally just like crying and thinking, what am I doing? I'm going to San Francisco. I didn't have a room. I didn't have anything planned out. But I knew that if in case she called me back, I needed to be there because I sure didn't want her to call me on my bluff. And so I flew out there. And fortunately, my husband has always been so supportive of like, and he was building his business too. And we were not flush with money, but we figured it out. And he said, if this is what you feel like you need to do, go. And so I did. And I got a little shoebox of a room. I remember it had no windows and like a bathroom down the hall. It was actually quite scary. My mother would have never approved. Um, I didn't know San Francisco. I had actually never been to San Francisco in my life. So I'm like navigating this city. And I remember going to bed that night pretty late. I was pretty bummed. I wasn't sure I had any plans for the whole week. And my phone lit up. It said Sephora, which is how I had programmed Kim's name into my phone. And it turned out for me to be a blessing that I had this instinct to actually travel because she said, I think you're in San Francisco. Can you come meet us tomorrow? I have Margarita, who was her boss, and we'd love to visit with you about your plans. Are you free at 10 30? So I said, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> And I was, as most entrepreneurs are, I was completely ready. I had, and I didn't know what ready even meant in the world of beauty, but I had built what I thought were beautiful white boards of product with retail pricing and barcodes and such. And, and we sat down for two hours and just talked. And I told them that I had this vision to change the way the world thinks about sunscreen and develop innovation into this sleepy category. And I needed their help. I needed education. I am not going to stop. I always say, can't stop, won't stop. And so I said, I, I'm, I need this. And I think you guys are the perfect retail partner for my business. And initially, and I thought that meeting went really well. No promises were made, of course. And I went back to my hotel room. And my father has this thing about doing things in twos, because the best time to do something is right when you've accomplished something phenomenal. And I thought the meeting went incredibly well. And so I thought, before I tell my father that I've maybe got my elephant, I need to figure out the answer to his next question, which is like, what are you going to do next? And I thought, I met someone at a trade show along the way whose product line was also in Nordstrom in one of the spa resort shows and I sent her a quick email and I said, I really want to talk with the buyer at Nordstrom. And for me, it it made sense. I felt like I could put the Nordstrom and the Sephora buyer at the same table and we would all get along because I could explain that Nordstrom was going to reach that mother with three children in tow and Sephora was going to reach my younger demographic. And together we were going to have our youth covered in telling this story of how important it is to wear SPF every single day. And so she immediately fired back with the skincare buyer's name, C.C. King. And I sent C.C. an email later that day. And I said, I'm played the same trick. I said, I'm in San Francisco, just finished a meeting with Sephora. We're planning a spring launch and I'd like to fly through. This is when the skincare and beauty office for Nordstrom was in Orange County. I said, I'd like to fly through tomorrow on my way back home and sit down with you. And fortunately, Cece wrote me right back. I wasn't really expecting a reply, but I think I got her attention. And she said, tomorrow's my day off. But if you want to come and meet me at the Starbucks by my house, I'd love to see what you have to share. And so that's exactly what I did. And then I flew back. I had my answer for my father. And I began then to freak out because I realized that I very well might have a big spring launch in two major retailers, I had no inventory, I had no money. And that was really when I realized my husband and I both realized we needed an investor and we needed to talk about how we were going to fund this. We had no guarantees, but I told him I felt really great. We were going to land both of the accounts.
1: Yeah. And I know you and your husband were strapped for cash. He was running a business. You had your young daughter at home. So given that you knew this was a point to raise funding, what were your next steps? You know, that
0: never seemed very daunting to me, because at this point, I had proven out that there is something there. I had a lot of wins. We were continuing to double and triple the size of the business, and for me, it was really going back to that playbook. How do I find people to help support growing the business? And so I had relationships with quite a few affluent people in Dallas from playing the harp. And I started taking meetings and asking. I remember, gosh, so many of those meetings that I just called the CEO because I I was Holly the harpist, and I'd say, "Hey, I have something to share with you. Can I come sit on your office for 45 minutes?" And they all took those meetings, and I sat there, and ultimately. I did not convince any of them of this business. Also, they weren't necessarily investor types either. So I didn't know to look for investors that had family offices or any of that. I was just calling people that had money. And my brother was watching all of this along the way. And he had finished in this time his college at SMU and moved straight to New York and had been building a business that had gone from a handful of guys to 300 And so he had been a very big success, and he was watching this whole journey of mine. And every trip to New York to meet with the beauty editors, I slept on his floor. And then as he was doing better, I got a guest room. And he just saw the commitment. And it was one day when I had not found any investors for this brand that he said, Holly, I want to jump in there. I'm betting on the jockey. And that's me. And <laughs> he said, I want to help. How much money do you think you need? And it started at, I think, like, I think I can make everything that I need for this launch in the spring. I think it's six, five, six, seven hundred thousand-ish. And he said, you know, this is this is the best place I could put my money. It's much better there than it is a house out in the Hamptons. And he said, I'm too young for that. I shouldn't be dwindling my money. I'm gonna invest it in you. And I don't think he realized that 700 quickly became, I think, more like 1.56, but he really helped me as I put in place what I would need to launch. And throughout that process, and it was actually on his birthday, which was January 26th, I was already manufacturing for a launch and had no plans yet to know what a launch looked like in either of these retail partners. But it was on his birthday, it was actually... On the 25th, the day before his birthday, that Kim called me from Sephora and she said, I'm so excited to talk with you. I have secured an end cap for the 12 weeks of summer in all stores. It was super exciting for me. But at the same time, I had to say, Kim, I'm flying to New York tonight. I am going to be on a press desk side meetings for the next week. But after that, I would really like to come back to San Francisco and talk about what a launch would look like for me. And I knew then that Sephora was the right partner because she, I think was probably first a little confused. Like, why aren't you so excited? But then when we ultimately sat down again with her team and we talked about how I'm trying to de-seasonalize a category and I felt like I needed 12 months of distribution guaranteed. I needed to have shelf space in December that looked the same in July. So my pitch was scale me down to one product, scale me down to whatever size you have to, but promise me that I can have that same look in the dead of winter as on the 4th of July. And they didn't give me the answer on the spot, but ultimately that is exactly what I one day got that call to say that we've decided we're going to launch a new wall in Sephora called Advance Skincare Favorites and they said we're going to give you 6 inches of space pick your two favorite SKUs and it's all store distribution and again the company was just me at that time so they felt like this much smaller presence was manageable because I didn't have a team in the store I didn't have feet on the ground in New York and and I was nurturing my relationship with CC at Nordstrom along the way and and what Nordstrom offered me was 46 stores in their advanced skincare section. And I could talk with them about planning the entire layout for the product assortment. So that was a good birthday present for my brother that January. (laughs) He had, had already invested so much into this, but it really helped us with the launch. So Very
1: exciting. I'm curious, how long were you guys in business for at this point? Six, seven years? So that was in 2011.
0: And so my daughter was born in 2004. And I was working on formulas in 2002, three. So it's, it takes time to become a an expert in anything. And it has only been because I've been laser focused on this category for 16 years that we have the reputation that we have today. But all of these had to build on each other. They each needed, I learned from the experiences and I think important things don't happen. Game-changing, meaningful brands are not built overnight and sustainable brands that can become profitable. You have to put in the time. And I think probably some of that comes from having watched my mother and father and the careers that they've, incredibly successful careers that each of them have built. And I saw where it started they were married at a young age, they had not nothing. And, you know, I saw that. So that seemed normal to me. I've never felt that this was going to happen overnight. And you can't change a category or consumer behavior overnight. And I'm one of those few in the skincare beauty industry that had a real mission to change a category. And I think finding those retail partners that will embrace that vision and allow you the freedom to change a category is so important. I mean, if Sephora hadn't let me, what I immediately continued to shape product development for Supergoop was Sephora saying, okay, show us what you can do in the dead of winter because we don't sell SPF (laughs) in January. And if you fast forward today, we're in the January animation right now, and we're the top performing SKU with daily dose vitamin C serum, which is, again, it's still solving problems. How do you protect a very volatile vitamin C from the sun? Because very few consumers, what I learned in research was that vitamin C breaks down when it's exposed to the sun. So the world is putting vitamin C on their face, but without SPF it's completely inefficacious. So it will not protect your skin or you will get none of the benefits from the vitamin C. So it really helped shape product development because I had to think about, gosh, what is going to sell in January that's protecting our skin, that's going to be productive on the shelf. And so that's the way product is always, and has been our number one level of importance.
1: I know you've been heavily focused from day one about creating an amazing product. And right alongside that is the importance of educating your consumer, right? You're completely disrupting a new category. And from your perspective, do you have any tips or advice for entrepreneurs who are looking to change the way things are done in certain industries? So I think first and foremost, you have to make sure you have a point of differentiation. You have to have something
0: unique. I had something so unique that nobody even believed It it warranted being on shelf nine months out of the year. And so you have to have something unique. And if you have something unique that is not out there yet, and you have a reason for being, and you keep at it, and you don't stop, and you make your decisions with everything laddering up to your mission... And you're passionate. I think always it comes down to you have to be so passionate that you can't sleep at night because this is all you think about. I mean, I remember nursing Emery and I never slept in between when she woke up at midnight and three and then ultimately 6 a.m. would come and I'd be like, oh, I'm still up and I never did take a nap. But like, all I could do was absorb myself in this category and learn everything there was to learn, learn how I can do things differently, learn the way the industry's done at the moment and how you can change that. And, and so if you have the product and you have the passion and you have a purpose, the last piece of the puzzle is really your people on your team. And my team was built over the last eight years of a 16 year journey. And, That's when I think the magic really happened for me and this brand was in these, I had to put those first eight years in, but now having built the people and having the people on the team and the marketing engines humming and along the way through your process, you're doing things like improving your packaging and your, when you can afford to bring on a fantastic packaging Expert that can help see what you maybe didn't see, or I didn't know that the logo should be at the top instead of the bottom of the packaging. You know, teaching me the basics has been here in the last eight years.
1: Another question I have for you that I'd love to get your perspective on is you started your business when your daughter was quite young, and it's quite demanding. It's a high growth business. What advice do you have for our listeners who are trying to manage both their business and their careers, as well as their family life? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's one of those things
0: that I try not to beat myself up too hard about because I think family is so important. And there were definitely years, my daughter's now in her sophomore year in high school. And I literally woke up a couple of years ago and thought when she was going into high school, holy cow, I only have four years in our house with her. And like, where was I? Her whole middle school, I was like traveling around from LA to New York to San Francisco to having launched Southeast Asia and Singapore and Thailand and Malaysia and all of this and capital raising through the process. And we did both a series A and a series B after my little brother's initial investment. And that requires you be there. Often I was in LA and New York on the same day. And so I, I think the advice that probably understanding that this is a long journey you're going to be on. There are very few businesses that are built overnight that are doing super meaningful, sustainable things. And so if I would have any advice, it would be to take a breath and slow down and enjoy your children through those middle school formative years, because you are going to wake up one day and you're going to realize they're only in the house three or four more years and that's about as much time as you have to influence their decision. So at this point I have slowed down a little bit. I mean I I was looking at my 2020 goals recently and one was to have more family dinners and I'm like, "Oh, careful what you wish, wish for." <laughs> so this last year it has been we have been able to enjoy some long months at the ranch and and I've been able to have so many zooms and and connect with just as many people and have just as many podcast moments but it has been good because I think it has forced everyone in this country to to value their time with their family and their kids and realize that nothing about being successful today matters if my children aren't healthy and doing well and prepared to go live by themselves and It really did hit me pretty hard when Emory was going into high school. So We're really trying to spend more time nurturing that over these years that I have left. And my son is in seventh grade, so he's in middle school. And I am definitely enjoying more spending that time. It's hard when you're that passionate, though, about something. You just don't want to stop. Everything is about your brand and building it.
1: Do you think your business would be where it is today if you didn't work those crazy hours and really push through those tough times when your daughter was in middle school? Emery said something to me that
0: was really profound, and I didn't really listen to her in seventh grade when she said it, but I asked her if it bothered her how much I travel. I was taking her to school, and she said to me, it's not how much you travel. We already know how to wear sunscreen, mom. You need to get out there and tell everyone else how important it is. But it's when you're with me, I want you to be more present with me and not thinking about what you're doing at work and with building your brand. And that was in seventh grade, I think, that she said that. She said, I'm okay with the travel. And like I was the mom that left a note on Emory's and Will's pillow before I left on every single flight. And, you know, I felt like doing those things was enough. But I think what I would say to other founders is, Get your brand out of your mind when you're with your children, and make an appointment to do it. Maybe it would have been helpful if, like, I had actually calendared those moments where I'm not looking at my phone, I'm not trying to tie something into wearing sunscreen, <laughs> and, and uh, try to find interest in what their interests are. And I think that's just really important. Those those sixth, seventh, and eighth grade years are formative, and like I mentioned, without the health and wellness of your children. Success doesn't really mean anything, and that's just so important.
1: And that actually takes me to a closing question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money, and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does wealth mean to you at this point in your life? At this point in my life, I'm 16-plus years into this building this
0: brand, and we have, gosh, changed a category. We're creating a category and i think for me it's really all about health and family i still dream about spf every night but i think making sure that having a family that's close with good relationships with good conversations and are being all healthy is absolutely my definition of the new wealth
1: And that's such a great reminder for all of us listening, including myself. And Holly, I so appreciate you taking the time to share your incredible journey building Supergroup and spending time with us today. Thank you again. Oh, thank you for having me. This was such a fun afternoon.